tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Matthew 17, verse 9. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, it's a deep mystery in the transfiguration. I pray that you would bless my uh, human words to unpack your divine truths from within your scriptures this morning, that we might hear your word and be edified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this event, which we commemorate liturgically today, the transfiguration of Jesus, is really singular in his life when you think about it. It's the only time where his glory is visible in himself. And um, even though there were other moments in his ministry where glory was um, signified or pointed to, like when he does something miraculous, when he performs a miracle, it's glorious. But you still, all of the, or when the um, vision of the Holy Spirit like a dove fell on him in his baptism, all of the other incidents beyond the transfiguration require uh, interpretation. And they require um, sort of understanding to, to perceive his glory. But there's no mistaking a face shining brighter than the sun and clothes changing to white. So one of the deep mysteries about this is Jesus is clearly capable of showing this glory. And yet he doesn't do that throughout all of his ministry. But for this couple seconds, it seems like, on the mountain before a cloud covers the whole thing anyways, and it falls out of sight. The transfiguration is really a singular event in the life of Christ. It's the one-time showing of Jesus' true glory of his divine nature, fully united with his human nature. It's not a light shining around him. It's, an, it's a light shining up from within him. His humanity is transformed by his divine life that's united to his human nature. It's a revelation of what Jesus describes in John chapter 17. He uses this phrase, the glory that I had with the Father before the world existed. That's what we get the sneak peek of in the transfiguration. What startled me actually thinking about it this week is we actually don't even see this level of glory in the resurrection appearances. When Jesus shows up in the resurrection, he looks so ordinary, they're a bit confused even by his appearance. Remember when he shows up on the Sea of Galilee, or, and they said no one dared ask who it was, they knew it was the Lord. But like, even in his resurrection, he doesn't show this kind of emanating, no mistaking it, wild quality of glory that would just bowl everybody over, as it in fact bowled the three who were there over, right? They're like, ah, should we build some tents, Lord? I mean, what do you want? Uh, in the icons of the transfiguration, we keep on, I keep on right outside my girls' room because, like me, they struggle with a lot of, with nightmares. And uh, before going to bed, I'll show them kind of the icon of the transfiguration because it's Christ like emanating this light. And it's just a great vision to kind of meditate on before falling asleep. But in the picture, there's Christ and this light. And at the very bottom of the icon, there's these three disciples sort of falling over themselves in contortions. And it's a great capturing of the scene, the glory that knocks everything over. We don't even get a sneak preview. We don't even get to see this glory in the resurrection. We actually won't get to see it again until Christ's second coming, or until heaven, whichever comes first. But those are the pictures we see of Christ's coming in glory. We get a picture of this in Revelation. Think about when John gets a vision of Jesus in glory in heaven, and it's hair white as wool and blazing with light. A light so bright that Revelation 21 even says that 
Heaven has no natural sun, no natural um, illuminating body, because, verse 21, 23, its lamp, heaven's lamp, is the Lamb. Just the raw glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus brightens all of heaven for eternity. That's what we get a sneak preview of on the mountain of transfiguration. But what I want to um, accent this morning is the fact that right after it happens, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. It's like there's this explosion of light, and then so quickly it's covered by a cloud, and then when after it's all over, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What about that? Well, I think the transfiguration is incredibly powerful for us as Christians, as it shows us, a, a, I like this word, sneak preview, a glimpse of the glory that is to come. But the transfiguration is not supposed to be norm-setting for our Christian expectations. Think about it in the proportion of the life of Christ. In fact, most of his miracles, he often sort of hides with a veil of covering in some way, like he runs away, dodges the crowd, or all these different things. He often tells the disciples not to tell anybody. But especially, I think, with this transfiguration, interestingly, he only takes three, not even all the disciples. Just three people get to see this. Again, saying this isn't sort of the normal Christian expectation. They weren't asking for a vision, which is significant. They weren't saying, Lord, show us your glory. When that happens, Jesus says, you've already, you've already seen me. What, what, what are you looking for? And what's really interesting is that no sooner does this vision take place, cloud overshadows the whole event, and the voice from the cloud says, um, this is my beloved son, affirming the epiphany at his baptism, right? Exact same phrase. This is my beloved son at his baptism. This is my beloved son of the transfiguration, which, by the way, in the chronology of Jesus' life, happens just before his descent to Jerusalem for his death and resurrection, which is why we celebrate this at the beginning of Lent. He says, this is my beloved son, listen, um, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. So God's direction, even from this vision, even after getting a vision of glory, is redirecting back to hearing, right? Faith that comes by hearing. Listen to him which is a strange inversion. We're so used to the Christian life rightly being understood as we walk now by faith, and then when we die, it, faith will become sight. Or when Christ comes back, faith will become sight. For this brief moment, it was sight culminating in the direction to vision. I mean, sorry, to hearing. So again, I think the transfiguration, not norm setting for the Christian life. And again, tell no, tell no one the vision, because it would be so liable to be misunderstood as, oh yeah, like there's this glorious thing that you could like pursue to try and get to see and become too uh, normed in the wrong way. The reason I think I'm wanting to emphasize this point, which might seem a peculiar sort of codicil to the, the transfiguration narrative, is because this quality of seeking to actually make little of visible glory, to veil glory, to have glory be only seen here and there in glimpses, is actually a defining quality of Christ's ministry in God's own nature. That when God wanted to show forth his glory in ransoming mankind, he did it through uniting with the life of a single human being, a carpenter for 30 years, whose glory, as we, in Philippians we see, was laid aside in the incarnation. That this mark of not making a lot of glory characterizes Christ and our life in God. And this is in distinction to the enemy, to the devil. That Christ, um, 
only shows his glory in this glimpse, and the rest of the time it's veiled, and then he suffers for us. Satan is constantly trying to parade his glory. That's this description we get in Scripture. Think about the temptation of Christ. They go to a high point. All of these kingdoms will be yours. Called in 2 Corinthians, an angel of light. What an intriguing um, Scripture describing Satan masquerading as an angel of light. It's like this sort of attempting to try and dazzle with a false glory. That's the way of Satan, manifestly in the Scriptures. Whereas Christ, who actually has real glory, keeps it very veiled, only gives us this partial glimpse in a moment. And the world, by which I mean sort of the fallen part of the world, not all the people in it, that follows the prince of this world, um, follows the very same strategy. The enemy is constantly inspiring the world to try and dazzle us with fictitious glory. So in, I think in times gone past, people were more impressed by imperial military mights, like, look at the Roman army, the Assyrian army, and all its banners and blazons. Be impressed by this glory. In times when society's been more philosophical, it was, be impressed by this great philosophy. Like trying to dazzle the eyes of fellow human beings. I think in our day, the um, attempted dazzling is through the, from the angle of Look at all these scientific and technological accomplishments. Be dazzled. Honor the creature rather than the creator. And against this sort of um, world we live in where there's constant false glories attempting to dazzle, Christ in humility, in hiddenness, in his earthly ministry, in his continued ministry through his body, the church, that all, all it looks like to the eye is bread and wine. That through these humble veilings, God himself is ministering to our souls his own divine life afresh. Against the backdrop of the world and all of its false masqueradings of glory. I love this uh, story of St. Martin of Tours, fourth century saint. Um, he was praying one time, and while he's praying, he sees this sort of glorious um, being come towards him. It looks like a man kind of described with a, ra- a radiant um, what, what was the exact phrase? A glittering radiance. A glittering radiance, he describes it as. And this being says, I, I am the Christ, Martin. I've come to you. Some of you have heard me tell this story before because I love it so much. And St. Martin says, If you're the Christ, show me the wound of the nails. At which point, the light goes away and it's clearly a demon and it runs away. And I love that instinct. To, not, to be so undazzled by glory, to be so anchored to Christ in humility as his earthly life was, as he died on the cross for us, that sort of that's the call out. Well, does this vision, does it take me to Christ crucified? Because if it's not, probably it's an angel of light, as it was for St. Martin. As in, not an angel, as in a demon. And to sort of take from this um, pattern of St. Martin that way of investigation. Anything that's dazzling, whether in religion, because the Lord predicted that even... Um, in-house in the church, there will be in the end times many signs and wonders that are not of him that will lead people astray. So whether it's in religion or in the world, anything that's like, whoa, to sort of ask that question, show me the print of the nails. Does this actually take me back to Christ crucified or is this apart from Christ crucified? And investigate it with that question. That's the question to ask of all glory. If it's really of Christ, it will take us again and again, just like last year, again and again, year after year, to the foot of the cross of Christ Jesus. 
where with infinite thanks, adoration, and repentance, we receive his free gift of his life, and where we also get the pattern for our own lives, not patterns of glory, patterns of humility, of weakness, and death. I was so struck hearing it, as Solomon wrote so well from Philippians, becoming like him in his death, in Philippians. What a um, profound encapsulation of time as a whole, but especially as we look at this Lenten season. Becoming like him, obedient to the Father, lowly, patiently suffering, giving our life for love for others. Becoming like him in his death. That's the print of the nails. That is true glory. Amen. Thank you.